Tomorrow is the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther posting his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. That launched the Protestant Reformation. So tomorrow is Reformation Day. It's on Halloween. That's how you can remember. And in fact, All Hallows' Eve was the day that Martin Luther chose to do that. So we are, and this is no surprise to any of you, but we are proud Protestants at Calvary Chapel. In fact, we are Protestants before we are Calvary Chapel. And we view that, that revival, which is what it was, as an overwhelmingly positive thing. And as an as a amateur, obviously, student of history, it never fails to surprise me how little the Reformation is accounted for as people explain the movement of history. Uh, you know, everyone wants to talk about the Renaissance, everybody wants to talk about the Enlightenment, but right smack in the middle of that was this enormous, world-shaking, earth-shattering thing. And I'll see people that even deign to talk about religion in the public square today who have very little understanding, if any, of the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic or an Orthodox Christian. And so we, of course, view this event positively, it was when the, the husk of, of corruption and superstition that had grown up around the church was broken off and the simple gospel according to the word of God was restored. And so many things that we take for granted as obvious in the church today are are so because of these great reformers that came through. And in fact, even the Catholic Church with Vatican II and other things since then has adopted a lot of those things, although not, not nearly enough in my opinion. But let's run through the, the, just as a reminder, before we get into this, the five sole, or the five solas, if you want to use English. These are the, the five basic tenets of the Protestant Reformation that we've got to remember and that you all will seem very obvious to you, but man, people were fighting and bleeding and dying for these things 500 years ago. So the first one, sola scriptura. It seems pretty obvious to figure out, right? Only scripture. This means that for the Christian church, the only foundation of authority for doctrine and life is the scripture. We, have, we value tradition, but it is always, always beneath the scriptures. The word comes first. Now you think that might seem obvious. Well, no. In fact, that back then they weren't translating the scriptures. They weren't reading the scriptures. You shouldn't even be studying the scriptures. Just do what the fathers have told you to do. Number two, sola gratia. You can kind of hear that one. You know what something means when it's gratis. Only grace. How are we saved? Only through the grace of God. It is God from beginning to end who has reached out to save humanity. It is not some partnership between man and God in order to work out salvation. It is only by grace through faith we have been saved. And that's number three, sola fide. Faith alone, only faith. The only thing required for a man to be saved is to believe. And now again, these things seem so obvious because you can probably think of nine or 10 scripture verses that all pop in your head that say exactly that. But if you weren't even allowed or encouraged to read the scriptures, you would never know that. So wise, godly, brave men had to open up the word and bring these things out again after a couple hundred years of, of losing it. Solus Christus means only Christ, just Jesus, you might say. There is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not your priest. It's not the pope. It's not the saints, it's not Mary, it's nobody, it's Jesus. And that comes right out of the, the Bible too. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You don't need to get a, a run around to make Jesus like you. 
And number five is soli deo gloria. means only for the glory of God. The purpose of creation, the purpose of God's church, the purpose of your life and mine is to glorify God. Not to exalt ourselves, not to build ourselves up or to build some grand kingdom. The only kingdom we're building is the kingdom of God. Amen? So, sola scriptura, only scripture for your authority. Sola gratia, you are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, you receive salvation through faith alone. Solus Christus, there is one mediator and his name is Christ Jesus. Soli Deo Gloria, all things are for the glory of God. So here we are still standing on those things with every intention of continuing to stand on them into the future. Now when you think about the Protestant Reformation, the big looming figure that we have already mentioned this morning was Martin Luther. And we have told Martin Luther's story in some degree for the last several years. And it's important because it's, it's such a significant moment in, in history, but most of, most of all, church history. And for as much as people want to rag on Martin Luther, and there are plenty of reasons to get upset with him sometimes, but they are, people who do that are standing on the shoulders of the things that he brought back to the church. So I would encourage you to go back to the previous years online, look at our Reformation Day messages and listen to them. We're going to look at a different reformer today, and it really fits well because we are also talking about Daniel in the lion's den today. So let's, let's move away from Germany, which is where the, the hub, Germany, Switzerland, that's where the hub of the Reformation was. And we're going to move to the United Kingdom now, the Reformation in the UK, meaning England and Scotland and so on, was unique because when England declared itself to be Protestant, it was a huge step because at this point, all these countries were trying to figure out, do we do half and half? Do we you know, promote the Inquisition and put down the Protestants? Do we, are we really ready to cast off Rome? Well, King Henry VIII, who you maybe are familiar with, with the number of wives that he had, uh, he took advantage of the Protestant Reformation in order to secure authority for himself. He said, if I can find a way to not have to listen to the Pope, who of course at that time was a much more political figure than he was religious, if I don't have to listen to him anymore, then let's do it. So England, and there's more to the story, I'm summarizing of course, but uh, England broke away and England therefore became a haven for all of these Protestants that were fleeing the continent, especially Calvinists, because John Calvin had set up shop in Geneva and was doing God's work there. And so they began to print English Bibles and it kind of got away from the King of England, if you look at the story. And the story of the, of the Reformation in the United Kingdom was a constant attempt to throttle this thing and to slow it down, at least to control it. And there were great godly men that stood in the gap for that. But this also affected Catholic Scotland at the time, which of course is not the same thing as England. People from the UK get real bent out of shape if you confuse those two things. Just, you know, it's kind of like Mississippi is not... Alabama, in case anybody didn't know that. So, Scotland, and at this time it was an independent country. And in 1514, a man was born there named John Knox. Maybe you've heard this name before, John Knox. And Knox was born in 1514, and it was 1517 when Luther posted the 95 Theses. So he was kind of a, a half a generation back, you might say, of this. And he grew up going to school, and he was schooled in the, in the scholastic and Catholic style of the day. But very quickly, because this was the hot young thing with all the young theologians and seminary students, that he went over to the Reformation principles that I just outlined as a young man. And one of the first significant jobs he took, he became the bodyguard. The phrase they use in the, in the stories is he carried the sword 
for a man named George Wishart, who was an evangelist, a Protestant evangelist. And he would, you know, kind of be the muscle, so to speak. And when you know that about him and you read about his later stories, it's like, yeah, that about fits that this guy started out in security uh, as, as you read it. So, but then in 1545, George Wishart was arrested and he was strangled like with a, with a hangman's noose while he was burnt alive by the cardinal at the time who was in Scotland. Now, in retaliation of this, there were five men, five of his followers, Protestant men, who attacked the castle of St. Andrews, assassinated the cardinal, and took command of the castle of St. Andrews, which was a major seminary uh, Bible college at the time. And this was not immediately opposed. Like You'd think they would just storm the gates and take it back. But the situation was so delicate, they were more or less for about two years allowed just to be there. And the castles, you know, were self-supporting, and it was very hard to take them. So they brought their families in. They brought in some of their friends until there were about 150 people in this castle. And this is where John Knox joined them. He was not one of the assassins, but he joined them because he was the tutor of some of these men's t children. So he was the one that was catechizing their children. So he was brought in, and there was a man there named John Ruff, who was the chaplain. And he only figures briefly in this story, but he asked John Knox to be their pastor. And he said, no, I'm not ready for that. I'm not qualified. So check this story out. This always made me laugh quite a bit. So they, he decided, all right, he got together with all the people in the, in the castle except John Knox and said, all right, we want him to be our pastor, right? Yes. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. So he, he shows up at, at church one day. He's preaching about the call to ministry and outlining throughout the Bible, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the disciples at the, at, the, at the Sea of Galilee, the call to ministry. And he says, no man can ever refuse the call of God when the, when the Lord or the people of God put it out there. And then he singles out John Knox in the message and says, we are right now calling you to be our pastor. And if you agree with everything I just said, then you have to become our pastor. And so the uh, former sword carrier actually burst into tears and ran out of the room. So... You know, I guess he was a complicated guy, but, <laughs> but he did. He, he, took that, he took that spot, and um, his first sermon that he preached as a pastor was in Daniel chapter 7 in the castle of St. Andrews, where they were more or less under siege, and he preached from Daniel 7 that the Pope was the Antichrist. So, so much for your first message, and that kind of would fall in with his character. He was a very fiery preacher, and he did not back down from stuff, and he'd get called to the king and the queen's house eventually, often, to explain what, exactly what he had meant by these things. But his, I mean, some of his favorite topics that he spoke about was what he called the idolatry of mass, where he says, you, are, you have framed the Lord's Supper in such a way that it represents another sacrifice of Christ, which is absolutely heretical because Jesus Christ has died once for all and he will never die again. Hebrews makes that very plain. And also, when they would, when they would stand and kneel to venerate the host, he's like, this is idolatry. We don't do that. He pounded the pulpit on the authority of Scripture alone. I mean, imagine how radical this is. We're not looking to church councils. We're not looking to the authoritative scholars. We're looking to the Bible and as well to the, the, other, the other solas, right? Justification by faith, which was, again, radical and liberating to these people. But this could only last so long. In 1547, Mary of Guise, who was the queen regent at this time, meaning her son would grow up to be king, but she was ruling in his place at the time, 
Uh, she was a Catholic, as most of them were in Scotland, and because of that, she was allied with France, and so, which was, was and remains Catholic to this day. She called in French troops to storm the castle, capture the men, and they succeeded. And John Knox was sentenced in 1547 to row as a galley slave in a French warship, which he would do for 19 months and maybe you've seen the movie Ben-Hur when they're under the boat and they're rowing and the guy's pounding the drum. 19 months of that, which was torturous enough, but most of the people that were rowing in this particular galley with him were Protestants who were being punished. And they would come around and the, the sailors and the men on board would mock them and try to force them to engage in Roman worship. And they would refuse and they would be beaten and they would be disciplined for it. There's one story where they were trying to force him to kiss an, uh, a, an image of the Virgin Mary. And he said, you have, to, you have to kiss it or we're going to throw you overboard. At which point he wrenched the image from their hands and tossed it overboard. And said, said let our lady save herself if she can. Now we hear these things and we go, this seems like kind of an in-house discussion. Why is this such a big deal? Because this is, these were the days where we were having to break out from this incredibly oppressive system that was masquerading itself as the gospel of Jesus Christ. During this time, while he was on board, he was writing and smuggling books out to be read by other people. He was thinking through a lot of his ideas. People would send him letters and he would counsel them what to do. And there's a famous story where they were sailing past Scotland again, and he sees the castle of St. Andrews, where he had been for two years. And he said to one of the men on board with him, he said, that is the first place I ever preached, and God is going to have me preach there again. Now, he's a galley slave. He's not going anywhere. But as you might imagine, that's exactly what the Lord would do. And we will return to his story in just a minute. But it is, it is profitable for us to spend time meditating on the days when the gospel of Jesus could be a death sentence, where if you are going to believe that you are saved by grace through faith alone, that you're going to refuse to say anybody other than Jesus is Lord, when you're going to refuse to hold up anything other than the word of God as the word of God, that you would be tortured and die for it. Because those days may very well come again. And for many people around the world, I think especially today of our brothers in Nigeria, those days are now. They're living this out right now. And what I want to look at today, our title is Prepare to Die. Because God has already told us ahead of time, when the stakes are that high, your orders from your commander are to die rather than compromise. And you best come to terms with that right now. When you are faced with Jesus or death, the answer is I'll take death. Or I say renouncing Jesus or death. Look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Jesus, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you were John Knox, you might say, Take up your chains and your oars and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I remember teaching this passage to pastors in Nepal, the mountains of Nepal, where 
part of the danger of serving over there is you never know, is this going to be one of the days where I might have to give my life? Because it's not, you know, rampant systematic persecution, but it depends on who you run into. You run into a bunch of communists, they'll shoot you for propagating the opiate of the masses. You run into a radical Hindu village, they'll, they'll kill you for denouncing their gods. You can run into any kinds of, kind of people. There's even other so-called Christians that will harass, abuse, and even kill other believers for not following their guy. And it's a really heavy thing when I'm standing there as a young man looking at these old saints in the Lord, teaching them what Jesus said in Mark 8, which is, if you are faced with death, you have to choose death. It's one thing for me to tell you. It's another thing when I know that there are people in this room who very well might have to do exactly that and may be standing in a point one day where my words are ringing in their ears telling them they have to choose death at this moment. But it's really true. It's heavy when it's really possible, but Jesus has already told us, if you are not willing to die for me, you're not worthy to follow me. That's what Jesus said. It's not me. Now, of course, in days like these, we're more likely to face odd looks today than death threats. People look at you funny, say weird things about you, maybe say mean things, maybe even very publicly say mean things about the church. But have you reconciled in your mind? Okay, you don't have to die yet for all we know. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of crazy people out there. But have you already reconciled in your mind that if that day comes, I'm prepared to die rather than compromise on this? And this is where I want us to focus our attention today. This is the most, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den, right? And Daniel sets us the example of faithfulness under a trial of that magnitude, that he's not about to compromise, and he's not even about to hide his lack of compromise. Let's read these familiar verses, Daniel chapter 6, verses 11 through 17, with the memory of the martyrs and the reformers in our mind and our example as we move forward. This is after they have made prayer illegal, and Daniel went home, opened his window, and prayed for everybody to hear. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. They always bring that up when they want to, when they want to criticize Daniel, huh? He was also one of the chief satraps in the whole land, but this is all they care about. He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him, trying to find a loophole in the law somehow. But then these men, verse 15, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Well, this was the plan all along. They say the only way we can bring Daniel down is if he, we make something illegal about the law of his God. And so they outlawed prayer. 
You can't pray for 30 days except to King Darius. And they knew he would do this, so they're lying in wait for him. Daniel probably saw them when he opened his windows to pray towards Jerusalem. Maybe he waved at them. Maybe he prayed for them. But he knew what was up. And they ran and they tattled to the king. They reported him to the king. And boy, does Darius not come off very well in this story, does he? And this is very frequently what you see about the stories of the kings while the Jews were in exile. Is they just look like dupes. Like you, you just got deceived by these people. You're all proud of your unchangeable law. And now your unchangeable law is going to force you to do something you don't want to do. And that you know would be bad for the kingdom. But more than that, you yourself don't have the strength to stand up and say, I don't care what the law says. I'm not putting an innocent, righteous man to death. Reminds us of Pontius Pilate an awful lot, doesn't it? It's like Pontius Pilate should have just said, you know what? No, I'm not doing this. I'm not crucifying this man. He knew better. You can wash your hands all you want, but you're still guilty. And in fact, church history tells us that Pontius Pilate went to his grave chronically washing his hands for the rest of his life. I'm inclined to believe that. But there's nothing to be done here. He tries all day to save him, and they said, don't forget, this is a law of the Medes and the Persians. As a little side note, if we are considering that Darius may have been a lesser king under the reign of Cyrus, the great emperor, that perhaps would explain why he is a little more easily manipulated here. Because if he's, if he's the guy of guys, who is he really going to appeal to here? Right? If Nebuchadnezzar probably would have just had their heads cut off and be done with it. But if he has to report as a Mede to Cyrus the Persian, who is the head of the Medo-Persian Empire, perhaps that explains why he is so helpless here. But of course, their laws are not like our Constitution that can be amended or even laws repealed. There's nothing to be done. The Persian kings used to keep lions to hunt. That's what this den of lions is. They would go off hunting, and like many rich men, they would just stalk the pond or stalk the den in this case, and they would just turn the lions loose. We have uh, paintings of these on, on walls and in art where you see the king standing there with a spear, and there's a lion in his gardens. So they didn't just hang out in the gardens, they also hunted in them. And they planned to throw Daniel into this lion's den. This actually happened in our own city not too long ago. Did you see this? They, they had brought in a male lion to be with the female lioness at the Birmingham Zoo. And they did all kinds of exposure ahead of time, let them see each other through a cage and smell each other and get to know each other. They opened up the gate for the first time for them to be with each other. And immediately the lion ran over to the lioness and tore her to pieces before they could even get out to her. So... When we talk about a lion, we know this, but do I need to just emphasize lions are ferocious. If a lion, male lion, is able to tear apart that quickly a female lion, imagine what he's going to do to an old man like Daniel is right here. And we don't give in any details on what this den would have looked like, except that there was a bottom to it. So perhaps it was some sort of cave. Perhaps it was like an enclosure we see at the zoo. But he's put in there. The entrance is sealed. And we're, of course, immediately struck by the unfairness of this, aren't we? It's like, you've got to be kidding me. This was all personal. This had nothing to do with, with trying to honor Darius. You wanted to get rid of a political rival. He didn't deserve this any more than the other Christian martyrs deserved the gruesome ends that they faced. And we see that and we can get indignant. And there's a right place to be indignant there. But, you know, Jesus had a unique perspective on this kind of thing, didn't he? Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said this at the end of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted 
for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' perspective on Christian suffering is that it is the mark of faithful service that you suffer for the Lord Jesus. In fact, it is imitation of his own suffering. Jesus is the consummate example of false accusation, is he not? Taken to the, the final degree of crucifixion. Consider Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, who if you read that, the the writer Luke is deliberately describing his death in similar terms to that of Jesus. So many things were parallel. First of all, it was the same people. It was the same message. It was the same accusation. We're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it again. He also, as we sang this morning, when he was being stoned to death, cried out for God to forgive the ones that were killing him, for they didn't know what they did. Reproach for the name of Christ. That's the gig you have signed up for if you are a Christian. Reproach, not celebration, not applause, not acceptance, not love. Reproach. You signed up for a hard, narrow road. And that can sound real poetic when everything is going well, right? Well, not everybody can walk this narrow road. And then the road gets hard. And you hear what Jesus said. It is a hard and narrow road that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And how many times Jesus said that there would be many that followed after him that didn't make it to the end. The danger is in order to avoid danger, we will try to compromise We will try to change things. We will try to give in. They told us not to pray for 30 days. All right, let's just not pray. Let's just not pray. Because, you know, the Lord will hear us. We can pray silently or we can pray secretly. If you are seeking the approval of men, and that's the problem. Sometimes people, it's not so much, well, we want to protect ourselves. It's there are many Christians in churches who believe that the approval of men is something that we ought to have and ought to seek. And if we don't have it, that we're doing something wrong. And you can look at this at our own national heritage, where at the very least, the church was more of a, of a normal thing. Everybody went to church. Everybody knew their Bible. There was prayer in school. We learned the Ten Commandments. We swore on the Bible, etc. And as that changes, many people, rather than reacting to the apostasy of our nation, are saying, what can we do to get them to like us again? Well, that's not, that's not good. You can start to compromise doctrines on this. Listen, people are offended when we talk about the blood of Jesus covering us. They, they're offended by that. Do we really need this one? Let's, let's just get rid, not, not focus on that so that we can, we can hang out together. Well, you know, they believe in, in this, this one, one Allah, one Allah God. We believe in a triune God. Do we really need to focus on the Trinity so much? Do we really need to do that? Yeah, everybody's a sinner. Well, but you know what? Everybody's kind of feeling good about themselves. So let's not talk about sin. All of these things have been done and are continuing to be done. Righteousness. We'll compromise righteousness. We've just got to realize that, you know what? People just are not going to save sex for marriage anymore. We've just got to stop talking about it because it's a losing battle. And if they do it, great. But if not, who cares? Or you know what? I know the Bible tells us not to get drunk, not to get high, not to allow our minds to be taken away. But you know what? That's just not the culture. Don't talk about that with the kids. They don't want to hear that. No, you know, forget the kids. Anybody wants to hear that. 
or even just our piety. You keep it to yourself. Don't you realize that it is, a, it is a plank of our doctrinal platform that Jesus gave us that we must talk about this? And if somebody tells you you can't, you have an obligation spiritually to refuse? Because Jesus said, go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, they said we can't. And we can't compromise. Such people that are seeking the approval of men for the church will never get it. When you give people a worse, watered-down version of Christianity, they don't want it. Your kids don't want it. And they go off and say, well, what do I need the, what do I need the rest of this stuff for? And such people will become liabilities to the church. Just, and they start to get angry, not at the world for rejecting the gospel, but at the church for not adjusting the gospel to modern sensibilities. Paul in... The book of Titus quotes from Epimenides, who was a Greek playwright and poet. And so it is with that in mind that I feel liberated to quote from one of my favorite bands when I was growing up here. <laughs> and uh, this is not, I'm not in endorsing the, the entire message of the song, but they've got this one line in this song that just always hits me really hard. This is from My Chemical Romance. <laughs> I was kind of an emo kid, now you know. But here's the line, everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to die. And they kind of see them style themselves as this activist kind of band and, you know, a song about all the trials and the problems in, in the world and the, the bridge builds up to this, like everybody wants to fix it, but nobody's willing to pay the ultimate price and actually do what needs to be done. Isn't that true about the Christian church today? Everybody wants to see the world change, but nobody's willing to die to themselves and even be ready to actually die to see it happen. Christians must be those who are willing to endure, to suffer, and to die for the truth of the gospel. I think we know that, but it's good to have been reminded of it. Let's continue the story. Daniel is in the lion's den. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. And sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Do you notice how they always say, O oh, king, live forever? And he refers to God as the living God. Little, little subtle notes there. Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Darius knew that. So verse 23, the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And that's usually where the curtain closes on the children's cartoons. But let's get the adult version, verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Kind of like when David cut off Goliath's head. That's always not included in the cartoons. This part's usually not included either. Well, Darius spends a sleepless night knowing that Daniel is in a den full of lions. Kind of reminds us of, going back to Pontius Pilate, Pilate's wife. 
Remember she came to him and she said, I have suffered many things in a dream, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And he rushes there first thing in the morning and Daniel was alive. You know the story. God had sent angelic helpers to protect Daniel. And in fact, the, the whole back half of the book of Daniel is going to be chock full with more angelology than just about anywhere else in the Bible. We will return to these angelic helpers in the coming weeks. But Daniel survives the law. And this scene, you can see Darius is trying his best to get Daniel out. Because the law said what? He'd be cast into the den of lions. Well, he was cast and he's okay. Get him up out of there. So now finally he's starting to, to press back a little bit. And in place of him, those who had plotted against him were torn apart by the lions in their den. The Bible says, The Lord regards it as a righteous and just thing to reward with affliction those who afflict you. There's a verse to write down and stick somewhere. It is righteous with the Lord to reward with affliction those who afflict you. And Daniel gives us two reasons. Well, Daniel gives us one and then uh, the, the, uh, the writer who is also Daniel. But anyway, two reasons he was delivered here. And the first one, he says, I was found blameless before him, meaning God. I was delivered because I was found blameless. What does this tell us? Daniel's faith was not an escape hatch. It was not something he kept just in case things went down. He'd have somebody to pray to because things went down and he was stuck in the lion's den. It was his very life and breath. He was blameless before the Lord. The gospel, as he understood it, meaning the covenant to Israel, the promise to be restored after 70 years, the promise that one day Messiah would come, as he understood it, had permeated every area of his life from the doctrine that he believed. He knew that God was able to deliver and that God is a jealous God and would not allow himself to share his glory. All the way down to his habits. I pray three times a day. And the might of the Persian Empire cannot stop me. Maybe you saw that movie 300 where the Persian army is attacking the Spartans, right? Imagine all that might coming to stop you from praying. And Daniel goes, I guess I'm getting fed to the lions then. He was blameless before the Lord. Not perfect, but blameless. And we know he was blameless because they tried to blame him for something and they couldn't find anything. And number two, because he had trusted in his God. That's ultimately what saves anybody is their faith. Not that you are the best version of you, not that you're righteous, not that you're holy, but that you have faith in a holy God. Do you notice how Daniel did not try to scheme and sneak around to get out of this? He didn't take a sudden abrupt holiday out of the king's city. He didn't try to do it in secret. He didn't view the verdict of the, of the king as God's displeasure. He didn't say, well, listen, if God wanted me to keep praying, he wouldn't have made prayer illegal. I'm supposed to honor the king, so I better not pray anymore. He had faith. He says, this is what God's told me to do, and I'm going to do it and trust that God is able to vindicate me. And once again in this story, the God of Israel is shown to be greater than the empires of men and their kings, which is ultimately the main theme of the book of Daniel, is that God's kingdom is greater than all other kingdoms. But you know, this story was for good reason, I think you can understand. When the early first Christian martyrs, I'm talking about during the Roman Empire, were killed, their tombs would be decorated with images and paintings from Scripture. And the most common one was Daniel in the lion's den. That makes good sense, doesn't it? But for them, this was not a deliverance from pain that they were looking for. It was deliverance from death. 
Daniel's lion's den is a picture of the pit of death, full of lions, right? And 1 Peter tells us that our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. devour. But of course, Jesus is a bigger, stronger lion, the lion of Judah, right? But it's not just the, the going into the pit of death. It's the pit of death opening up so that God's righteous one can be delivered out of the pit of death by faith alone. Romans 6.5 says, If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And if you are hoping for the resurrection to apply to you, you better be identifying with the death of Christ now. We are not blameless, but Jesus was. Jesus was blameless. And he went down into the grave on behalf of each of us. He went down so that you didn't have to. And if you have faith, then you are able to share in his deliverance, in his resurrection from the dead. Death becomes a transition for those who have believed the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? That death is not the end. I've been to a lot of Christian funerals, and they're all sad. They're all sad. But you know what? There's always an undercurrent of joy and laughter. And, and saying this kindly, and I hope you hear me when I say this, of business as usual. That we're still worshiping the Lord and loving each other and praising each other because we know what we have, the hope. But when my friend, I had a friend named Patrick, committed suicide when he and I were about 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And he had, his family had fallen apart. He had renounced the Lord, been living on the streets on purpose. His family was very wealthy. He was living on the streets on purpose, drugs, whole thing. And uh, he had committed suicide, hanged himself. I went to that funeral and I have never been in a more hopeless place in my entire life. Because what are you supposed to say? For, I mean, first of all, you're going to try to talk. They, they brought in a pastor to try and speak at this funeral. But what, what is he supposed to say? He's supposed to give assurance to this family about this young son who had completely renounced the Lord, lived a life apart from the Lord, and ended his life apart from the Lord. And then there's all these kids. I mean, tons of them. He had tons of friends. He was a great guy. Who were all living the exact same life and headed for the exact same place. It was the most hopeless thing. But in Christ, you have hope. And we don't grieve like the world grieves. Because we know someone that's already been there and has come out and is ready to reach a hand down and pull you out of the grave too. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. And when you know that, coming us back to this idea of not compromising. When you know that, when you know that as painful as it might be on the other side of death is eternal, everlasting life, that makes you into the most brave, unstoppable person the world could ever know. What are you going to do to a person who's not afraid but actually kind of welcomes and looks forward to death? Are you going to bribe that guy? We'll give you lots of money. It's like, I have a wealth of heavenly riches awaiting for me in glory. Not only that, but my body will be glorified. The tears will be wiped away and I'll be reunited with my loved ones. And you're going to offer me money to compromise the gospel? You're going to give me a house? You're going to give me a, a position of authority? I'm not going to do that. You can't bribe a man like that. Can you bully a man like that? You better watch out. We'll hurt you. We'll kill you. Okay. You can kill me if you want. It might speed up the process more than I'd like, but in the end, I'll be with the Lord. You know, the early Christian martyrs, Peter especially, would have to watch their families martyred in front of them first. They crucified Peter's wife in front of him. And then when she died, then they crucified Peter. And the whole time, he was shouting to her, don't give up. Just hang on. We're almost there. We're going to see Jesus again. And then he says, you best crucify me upside down because I know I am not worthy to be 
crucified the same way my Lord was. You can't bully a person like that. You can't intimidate them. You can't threaten them with something. You can't come with an online cancellation campaign for that person. Like the only person's approval I care about is his. And he's already on my team and I know how this story ends and I kind of feel sorry for you. And not only that, he specifically told me not to fear those who could kill the body but couldn't kill the soul, but to fear him who could kill both body and soul in hell. So you'll excuse me, I've got higher priorities than being afraid of you. And never, can you brainwash somebody like that? Try to convince them that there's a better way? And the sad thing is so many people give in to that. Some people will self-brainwash themselves out of the faith. Because they go to church for an hour-ish a week. Maybe they'll read their Bible once or hear a Bible verse somewhere. But they watch 12 hours of Netflix a day. Which worldview are you learning? Well, I just want to know what the other side says. But if you spend all your time reading the other side, what do you end up with? Well, you know, they make some good points. But if you are so fully convinced that death is not the end and that life is waiting for you on the other side, you, you get offended at somebody trying to convince you otherwise. Well, don't you know what that? I don't care what that says. I've met Jesus. Do you have any evidence of that? Yes, look at me. My whole life has been transformed. Well, that's anecdotal. Well, they're my anecdotes, and it's my soul. And you're never going to convince me otherwise. Not only that, I live in a congregation full of people that have all had their lives changed too. I know terrorists and murderers and spousal abusers and drug addicts that have had their lives changed in an instant. So you know, I'm not going after something else. These are dangerous people, man. If you can't buy somebody, bully somebody, bribe somebody, brainwash, if you can't do that, that's a dangerous man. And the world can't handle him for long. Consider John the Baptist. John the Baptist told everybody like it was. And they put him in prison. Jesus, they couldn't handle Jesus for very long, could they? They couldn't handle one son of thunder, James, for very long. He was the first one other than Stephen who was killed, the first apostle. And they, had to, they tried to kill John, the other one, over and over again, but the Lord preserved him. Listen, man, friend, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, if you have not, as an act of your will, bowed the knee to our God and said, I acknowledge that Jesus is the only way of salvation, let your life be turned over to him, you are headed for the lion's den. That's all that's left for you is death in hell. But the good news is, as you hear me speak, the Lord is reaching down his hand to lift you up right now. It's faith though. It's belief. It's complete all in. It's not, what do I have to do? It's no, bro, you've got to get there. You've got to be one of us because we're so great. No, because he's so great. Verse 25 through 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in the earth. Maybe a little Maybe a little evangelism typology, Great Commission typology right there, huh? He said, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And he wrote a little poem, isn't this cool? For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now this brings us, except for the following verse, to the end of the narrative portion of the book of Daniel. There's a pretty clear divide between Daniel 1 through 6, which is narrative, and Daniel 7 through 12, which is prophecy. Although there will still be some stories and, and some minor ones in the second half and that we've seen some prophecy already. But we come to the end of this, and it's another proclamation of praise from another pagan king. 
He says, everybody is to tremble and fear the God whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. And that, again, that's the main theme. God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Let Babylon come, let Persia come, Greece, Rome, Great Britain, the United States, Soviet Union, doesn't matter. God's kingdom will never be destroyed. And the two lessons we've learned through these two different kings is number one, that God is the revealer of mysteries. And number two, that God is the one who delivers and rescues his people. Now, isn't this, verse 25 through 27, isn't this exactly what the world wants to see? I mean, let's say the Christian church. Isn't this what we want to see? We want to see our own government acknowledging Jesus, honoring his church, maybe not even believing, but at least offering protection and support where they can. And that is to the, the end with, with some good reason to which we strive as a church. But we need to look carefully at how Daniel achieved this, if you can even say he achieved it. It was through his willingness to die for his faith. But so many would rather compromise. In our attempts to win the culture, we are trying to find things that everybody else likes, emphasize those parts of the gospel, and de-emphasize the ones that would be a stumbling block or an offense to them. Even though Paul said he would never, ever be persuaded to remove the offense or the scandal of the gospel. And here's something that I've been seeing lately, and I want to make, some, make a, a note on this because it's come up a couple times in my own life here. That Christians, and I, I'm kind of looking at this from a political perspective here, so are, are making partnerships with people who are not believers because they think that we can make these coalitions in order to push the good ends and outcomes that we want. And I'm telling you, this is dangerous and we've got to stop. I'm not that anybody in here is in charge of all of that. I'm just saying. Let me give you some examples here. I'm seeing an increased trend in the, in the same usual suspects and news commentators and political podcasts and all that that typically come from a rather Christian conservative perspective or at least a conservative one. Whereas before it was, you know, they were trying to bring in the, the church and have them part of the group. Now there's this increased emphasis on bringing Muslims into the fold and trying to find this common ground between the, the Christian church and the Muslim faith. And what do they believe about God? And what do they believe about the Bible? And isn't that interesting? And, they, you know, they're very moral too. And they want to see these moral things enacted too. So we can work together, can't we? Here's the other one that we're seeing. We're finding atheists who are believers in free speech, and therefore we become allies with one another. And we, we engage in these long debates and these, these water-down-the-gospel conversations in order to make these allies so that we can stand together for free speech or even freedom of religion. These same people who, like 10 years ago, were denouncing the church as an oppressive, hateful, foolish, stupid institution. How about homosexuals who oppose trans surgeries? Are all of a sudden allies for the church? And they'd say, well, yeah, I, I'm gay, but I would never want a child to have a transgender surgery because they're probably just going to grow up and be gay anyway. Are you kidding me? Like you get points for thinking that you shouldn't do this to kids? You don't earn anything for that. You don't get points for believing that the Bible is God's word. It is God's word. We don't need somebody outside of the church to tell us that. And so what are we going to do? We're going to take a step away from this horrific transgender thing to what? To just Allowing and permitting homosexuality? That was the line. Don't you remember? That was the line in the sand that the church would never cross. And then it was. And now here we are. 
I'm not saying you are, saying, are doing this. I'm just saying you've got to watch out for it. Or here's another thing we're doing. We're finding reprobate individuals who are proud proponents of traditional gender roles. But with all of the sin and lust that comes associated with that lifestyle we fought against for so long. I'm talking about pornographers and people that are, are sleeping around with multiple women and multiple men and saying, yeah, well, at least, at least the, you know, the, the men are strong and the women are beautiful. Like, again, like that gives you points. You don't get points for that. That's just normal. Even, I'm going to say this last one carefully because I want you to hear me very carefully how I say this. Even... When we start bringing along non-Messianic Jews to speak on what the Bible has to say. We're supposed to love God's people. Yes, we are. But Romans 11 tells us that until they come to Christ, there is a veil over their face and their hearts are partially hardened. And the entire, as it stands today, Jewish religion is founded on Jesus Christ was not the son of God. He's not the Messiah. And we got to stay away from that. Why are we doing this? I know why, but why would we? Well, the, the world is so strong and so terrible. We've got to find people that agree with us. No, we are imbibing the worldview of those who are denying our Lord. Well, we can agree on other things. We've got to stop this. I'm warning you about this. And I believe this is from the Lord. Well, we can, we can stand together on this thing. You stand with us. If you want to stand with somebody, you can come stand with me. I'm not going over there and standing with you. Because I only stand on one thing, and I've been singing it since I was five years old. The B-I-B-L-E. Do you remember that? 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We've got a lot of things in common. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you and be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Separation. It boils down to, do you trust God to get us out of this moral mess, or do you think that you've got to make it happen? Because if it's on your shoulders, then all of this is up for grabs, as long as we get the big stuff. If you require human wisdom to accomplish God's will, then you're going to look for it wherever you can instead of listening to the Holy Spirit. You know what Martin Lloyd-Jones said? And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a Welsh and, and English pastor who preached during World War II and into the 60s. And he was asked about this. He said, why, why, what is the, why do you seem so opposed to all of these evangelical Christians that are trying to make all these political moves. He said, I think the best thing the Christian church can do is to be absolutely incorruptible and that people, if they want our support, they have to work for it rather than us just being part of the crowd. When they assume they've got you, they'll stop trying to stand with you. And you start rubbing shoulders with people that are wearing down your sharpness in the spirit and think that you're doing God's work. Shouldn't we just be demanding that our allies cater to us and do our influence? You know how many Christians there are in this country? A lot. 
There's a lot of Christians here. And if we would just stand and say, it's Jesus, it's the Bible, and it's nothing else. It's like, well, then I'm not going to stand with you if you're going to be promoting a homosexual agenda. Well, we're standing against transgender stuff. That's not what I said. There is a right and wrong, and it's in the scripture. Well, haven't we kind of moved past that? God has not. Well, we're trying to bring in these other, these other religions, these other faiths. They're not other faiths. They're idols. It's idolatry. Well, they don't worship an idol. Okay, it's the same thing. You know that the mosque on the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, you know what it says in the, inside the dome up there? It says, far be it that Allah should have a son. Standing there where the holy place used to be is a worldwide golden testament that there is no son of God. And you want to come here and tell me that, well, we're both religious. You guys should hang out like your kids at a play date. Well, you both like video games. Why don't you hang out and play? This is too serious. Are you prepared to stand alone for these things? I think the problem is we're not. And they know that. Well, as long as we're on this side of these things, we've got them forever. So we, let's just try to bring in some other folks here. I'm worried about it, you guys. That's why I'm talking about it. Are you willing to suffer for these things? Even if that just means exclusion? Are you willing to languish in obscurity for these things? Are you ready to die for these things? That's got to be your attitude, man. Like, well, you've got to be a little more flexible on this if we want to see some victories. You've got to, bro, I'm ready to die for this. If you had a gun to my head, I would say no. If you were to say, well, we're going we're to send you to row in the galleys. I'm going to send you to prison. I'll die for this. The generation that does that will be the generation that sees the revival we're so desperate for. God is not going to bless some compromising halfway church. First thing God does in revival, he strips everything away until it's just God, our awareness of sin, which directly leads into an awareness of the gospel, and it just blossoms until there's really nothing else. So if we want to see what Daniel had, y'all, we've got to do what Daniel did. This is, uh, maybe seems a little of, an, of a tangent from the message today. I'm just telling you to watch out for this stuff, especially those of you who are younger and are kind of getting excited by these things. And Oh, because you can get excited, right? Well, well hey, see, look, there's, there's a gay person that doesn't think kids should have the surgery. Or they, there's a Muslim who's okay with the Bible. He kind of wants this. Or, hey, this person said, this is an atheist, and they still think we should be able to worship. Well, good for them. How kind of them? These are not rights or blessings or benefits we get from them. We get them from Jesus. And if my God sees fit to give us all of those things, we will have them tomorrow. We stand. We stand and we do not compromise. In verse 28, this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So his story, story more or less comes to a close and it tells us of the reign in which he served, Darius and the reign of Cyrus. And we talked about this last time, but let me remind you that it is possible that Darius and Cyrus were the same person and that these were just different throne names that they had. So this would be during the reign of Cyrus, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Kind of like the reign of Darius, you'll probably know him as Cyrus. Or it could be that these were two different kings who reigned one after another. We just don't really have any historical record of Darius. Um, that could be true. Or the third option, and I think this one is probably the most likely, Cyrus was the big dog and Darius was the little dog. And they reigned at the same time but it ultimately does not affect how we interpret this passage. Let's get back to John Knox. Because John Knox also came out of that pit, which was in the slave galleys, to serve kings. In 1549, John Knox was released 
from the galley slavery. And I am, of course, having to condense his life quite a bit. But he became a court preacher to Edward VI, the King of England. But when Edward VI died, a woman ascended the throne who was known to history as Bloody Mary, who gained that name because she was a Catholic Queen of England who persecuted and executed an awful lot of Protestants. He fled to the continent there. He served as a pastor in several places. He grew to know Jean Calvin very well. You may have heard of Calvin as of Calvinism. He was also one of the chief translators for the Geneva Bible, which was the English Bible until the King James Bible. When he returned to Scotland, it was right at the time where a civil war was breaking out. And what had happened was Mary of Guise, who was the Queen Regent, do you remember? She was bringing in French troops to put down the Scottish lords and their armies, which of course doesn't sit well with most people when you bring foreign armies to, you know, to fight against your own people. And so there was a long civil war. John Knox was one of the leading theological voices and political voices at this time. And when she died, Mary of Geese died, John Knox, with several others, helped draft what was called the Scots Confession, which was the Protestant affirmation of faith for the land of Scotland. He also wrote the Book of Discipline for the Church of Scotland, which was the order of service and how it would be organized. And that, that was him that did that as the lead writer and the lead thinker. Later on in life, you maybe have heard of Mary, Queen of Scots, who after Scotland had declared itself to be Protestant, she came in as another Catholic queen. And he was kind of a thorn in her side because he was not afraid to preach about her and the things she was doing. Uh, and she, I think there's five different instances where she called him into her court to answer for what he had preached until eventually she was deposed. And John Knox was the one who preached at James VI's coronation, who we all know as James VI of the King James Bible. And it was then, under the rule of James VI, when the formal approval of Protestant rule was adopted and Scotland became Presbyterian. So that was the system of government he established with the plurality of elders rather than the episcopacy with the bishop and the archbishop and going down like that. He died in 1572. And at his, at his graveside, one of the earls of Scotland, James Douglas, said, Here lies a man who never flattered nor feared any flesh. He never flattered or feared any flesh. And we are still feeling the impact of John Knox's ministry. He helped give rise to the Puritans because his, his example was so inspiring because Scotland had completely given, like gone all in on Protestantism and England was still trying to do this halfway thing with the Anglican church. So you had the Puritans looking to his example who ended up coming to the United States of America and organizing not just their churches, but also their governments according to the similar lines that John Knox had organized the Scottish church. It was one of the first exper experiments in democracy of that time. And yet today, if I can end on a bummer note, Evangelical Christians in Scotland represent 1% of the population. The land of John Knox and Alexander McLaren has 1% evangelical Christians. Their church recently, the official Church of Scotland, fractured recently over gay marriage, where a bunch of Christian pastors had to leave because they had said, you are going to be not only ordaining homosexuals, you're going to be performing the marriages in the church. 
And we do well to honor the heroes of the past. Look at the victories of Daniel and John Knox. But we've also got to look to our own days and struggles. And my warning today has been against compromise. Romans 12 tells us that we are to be living sacrifices with the thought in your mind that if the moment comes, you're prepared to be a dead sacrifice. A dead sacrifice. To actually give it all up for Jesus. Since the Reformation, we've gone from this heretical mass of superstition and oppression all the way down to the early 1900s and we, the book Mere Christianity was written, which kind of like distilled the gospel like as far down as basically you could go. This is what it takes to be a Christian. And yet it seems like there are many who cannot even hold to that. But the good news is the Lord is always looking for faithful men who will stand in the gap and say, as the case may be, yes or no. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. If you're concerned about the state of things and the direction of the church and the direction of the nation, the best thing you can do is to ensure that you are walking blameless before the Lord so that his eyes will find you and give strong support to you. But if you're trying to compromise your way to victory, the devil will eat you alive. The devil is a tyrant. He'll take every little piece you can get of him. Yeah, sure, you want to give that up? I'll take that piece too, and I'll take that piece too. And eventually it's going to take Christians that are going to dig in their heels and say, not only are we going no farther, we've gone too far. And that's called revival. Revival. And you know what happens? Yes, we suffer. Yes, we die. But there's an amazing picture. The Council of Nicaea, when the uh, Nicene Creed was first formulated. The Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor, walks in, walks in and they had seated on the, on the dais down there, they had a bunch of, they still called them martyrs from the early persecutions under men like Diocletian. These are men, that had, men and women who had had their eyes gouged out, their fingers cut off, their skin scraped off, their legs were broken, they were crippled, they were blind, and they bring them in. It's, I mean, it's a, these are old men at this point. They bring them in in this mighty procession. When Constantine came in in all his pomp and all his glory, he came in and knelt before the martyrs. What a picture that is. The emperor of Rome bowing the knee to the martyrs, to the Christians who refused to compromise. That's what is awaiting a faithful Christian who walks in blamelessness and faith that it will be glory at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Cultivate those qualities, Christian. Blameless. Could anybody hold up your life and doctrine and say, what is this? Jesus told us not to do that. What is this? This has nothing to do with the Bible. Where did you get that idea? And faith. Believe that if you live that way and you take the stand in the moment, God will honor that. It's the ultimate test of faith. If we will be lovers of the gospel and insist upon the word of God, then men will hate us. They will. Just get over it now. But God will be with us. And then even if we die, we are victorious. But long before that, we'll capture the hearts of a radical generation that finally sees some people living the way Jesus insisted we live.